This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, today you're going to be learning about how to create and implement a health data utility that really relies on partnership and having a vision for the future and interoperability, improving outcomes, and really serving the population. Today you have leaders from Sync Health, and I'm so happy to bring this to you today. This is our first episode really focusing on health information exchange and how to create a data utility for population health. So we've got with us Jamie Bland, President and CEO, Dr. Lara Peterson-Lukenda, Vice President of Population Health, and Joy Dahl, Chief Academic Program Officer of the Nebraska Healthcare Collaborative, as well as Vice President for Community and Academic Programs for Sync Health. Uh, what a great team and a fantastic discussion. If you want to hear from leaders and data and interoperability, thinking about how we as a country can democratize information to improve outcomes, look no further than this week's Race to Value. Jamie, Laura, and Joy, thank you so much for joining us this week in the Race to Value. We couldn't be more excited to learn from you, your journey in value-based care, and uh, share your story with our listeners today. Great. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I thought a great place to start. I'm thinking about this quote that from George Halverson, who was the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente. And he said, healthcare is an expensive plethora of uncoordinated, unlinked, economically segregated, operationally limited microsystems, each performing in ways that often create suboptimal performance. And I think about fixing healthcare, and so much of it is really comes down to unleashing the power of data and democratizing that to improve patient outcomes and really create alignment in the industry. And, you know, I think about the two products of healthcare and everyone thinks it's always, it's just the service and the outcome, but it's really about the health information that's also generated during that patient encounter, during that hospitalization, during that procedure. And what I love about Sync Health is that you're more than just an HIE. You're a population health utility that's really thinking about building the roads for the infrastructure to really create these optimal workflows and improve patient care. So I thought a great place to start, though, before we get into everything that you do there at Sync Health, would be really to talk about the HIE concept and maybe walk our listeners through not only your journey in value-based care, but also just the HIEs in general. When I think about the HIE concept, you know, I think about convenience and coordination and interoperability. And of course, there's the convenience factor for the patients and being able to have their medical information. And there's the coordination that comes when providers coordinate care. I also think about at a policy level, what was initially intended 11 years 
years ago when the High Tech Act dispersed $548 million to 56 states. And then you fast forward a decade later, and we have fewer than half of office-based physicians that can exchange information outside of their organization electronically. Less than a third can automatically integrate that information to their EHR. I know the ONC and CMS are really thinking about rejuvenating this HIE effort and creating a more robust data infrastructure to support the future of value-based care. And I was hoping maybe you could just speak to that. I would love for you to maybe share not only your background and your journey in building Sync Health to what it is today, but also how does that work in juxtaposition to the HIE landscape? I mean, we, we see some HIEs that you know, have failed, but the future looks pretty optimistic. We were reading, you know, in our research that the market for health information exchanges is going to go from like a billion dollar market to about 2 billion in, in only five years. And there's a lot of great opportunity here in terms of democratizing data. So I'll let you guys can kind of expound upon that, but yeah, I would love to learn more and see where this fits in. I will say that my involvement in HIE and, and really just even awakening to what HIE was in our state really happened around 2015. Prior to that, in the informatics space and in the HIT space and, and kind of some pre-high-tech dialogue around interoperability were these convening of healthcare systems that were establishing ways to share information for the purposes of better patient care outcomes or emergency department use cases. And a number of conversations that were happening in, in Nebraska and in Iowa as early as 2005. So a lot of foresight and, and planning went into the infrastructure that we had today. And I, and I do want to recognize that the state stakeholders and, and the thought process around how we got to where we're at today was predicated on a lot of that work 15 plus years ago. So the journey in, in Nebraska and Sync Health has really always been from a patient safety component and the big healthcare players coming together and saying, we're not going to build this 10 times, we're going to build it once, and it's going to have multiple use cases. And that was a private engagement. And the state came later and the high tech monies came later and the ONC funding came in and 2011-12. But prior to that, it was really some good engagement from the private sector and then the public sector came in later. My background first was a registered nurse and have spent a lot of time in the care coordination space. In 2015, I was working with Laura. Uh, Laura was at an ACO and I was at an organization that was working with clinically integrated networks. And we were really trying to use the HIE as infrastructure for the purposes of creating these clinically integrated networks and really trying to get down to some of the hesitation of building these networks two and three times across the healthcare systems and the reluctance to use HIE, recognizing that at the time, HIE was built on a query model, right? We were asking providers to go out and enter patient information query that patient information and bring that into their workflow. So it was, it was quite cumbersome and recognizing that that was prohibitive from a provider perspective. So I say what's unique to Sync Health is that the three of us on the phone, Laura and Joy and myself, were all providers at one point. And we recognize the difficulty in getting the information, acquiring the information that's necessary to make the best clinical decision possible, especially in these more complex care scenarios. And that's really what brought us here to Sync Health because we thought we could design this better. We had a different vision for what the technology could do. And we recognized that it was not technology limiting the accessibility of information. It was really hesitation from healthcare systems, hesitation from policymakers, and understanding how we could navigate that to build a better system that we could all benefit from. And that's what we've done. We've reframed the HIE as a population health utility that has multiple use cases. Yes, we can do query. Yes, we can push information. Yes, we're going to solve some of your problems in the value-based care world because we recognize that this has to be a value proposition for providers to take the time to access the information. But if we could push it into their workflow or push the data to various healthcare systems for use in their population health planning, that is certainly something that was envisioned around interoperability 15 years ago. This is Joy, I can just add that I think 
part of the reason I came to Sync Health and the vision of the health information exchange is also the utility of it and the fact that we're collecting all this data and we can improve healthcare by looking at the data. And I think still today, there are clinicians that don't realize when they look at their EHR that they're only seeing their patient data and the limitations when trying to study that to improve healthcare delivery that you lack a lot of the information. So I think the other piece that under Jamie's vision has been so powerful is the fact that this data is already being collected. How can we use it to improve the way we deliver care and start to meet those factors of the quadruple aim to really improve population health? Joy, this is Lara, and I can kind of dovetail on that. I think one of the unique aspects of Sync Health as a public health utility is that we really are stepping into the space that was laid out in ONC's 10-year vision around interoperability. We can go kind of drill down into the patient-provider relationship and provide the ability to offer information for clinical decision support and allow a mechanism for patients to be more engaged and empowered by the information they're sharing and see how that information can flow through multiple systems and take accountability and responsibility as being an active member in their healthcare. And I think that's kind of the true vision for us, as Jamie mentioned, kind of coming from that clinical background. I think, though, we can also pull that up to mid-level where we get to the relationship between the various provider practices and then also that population or public health level. And how do we then aggregate that data or anonymize that data to use the data for the greater good and the ability to make action or informed policy and the ability to put information in the hands of the individuals that might be foreseeing how healthcare will change over the next decade. So I think that the ability to influence the future of healthcare through the data that we have readily available is such amazing responsibility, but it also provides such a greater good to the community and the ability to do that in a way that has strong data governance as well as leverages those economies of scale. So we're not investing even more into the financial burden that healthcare already leads in our society. I think that's just an amazing opportunity to be a part of that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the great overview that you've provided. And what really impresses me about Sync Health is that you've truly found your niche and you know what your core competencies are. You've created this person-centered interoperability. And to talk more about why you're successful, I think we need to talk about the Nebraska Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, or PDMP, which was launched in 2018. And I think it offers a standalone medication query platform, and it's integrated into the Sync Health HIE. And the PDMP being enhanced by legislation to collect all controlled substance prescriptions, which are dispensed from pharmacies and other dispensers on a daily basis, allows these prescribers and pharmacists to view prescriptions and prevent the misuse of controlled substance prescriptions. And in 2018, when you began actually collecting all that dispensed prescription data, you were able to allow clinicians to better monitor care and treatment of their patients. So The PDMP being integrated within the health information exchange is really a fantastic opportunity. I think a great lever to both improve workflow for providers, but also kind of gave you a foundation to be successful. So I'm hoping you can speak more to that as a fundamental element to the success of Sync Health and creating this opportunity to establish yourselves as leaders in Nebraska and in the value-based movement. This is Jamie. The credit, I would say, goes to some very innovative thinkers in the policy development. You know, we had senators that really took the PDMP from a very personal perspective that there was a state senator that had um, a, a daughter die of an overdose. But when they looked at the PDMP, they did look at the tool as something that wasn't rooted in healthcare. It was a public health tool. It was a healthcare delivery tool that needed to be comprehensive for patient safety purposes. And from that foundation, we're able to really elevate and create an understanding within the provider community that this is comprehensive. It is a comprehensive 
medication repository that will allow you to view that uh, medication history in totality. And when providers have confidence that something is complete and is current, the use of that is evidenced in our multiple queries. And we've actually taken a step further that they don't even have to query in many cases anymore. We push that information into their workflow so that it's just a part of what they're seeing every day when they pull up the information. So focusing on patient safety and comprehensive information really creates a more egalitarian approach to to the pharmacy information. It's not to be separated from the clinical information. It's, It's a comprehensive tool. It's medication history, but it's also in the context of patient history so that it's an appropriateness of the prescribed medication. The availability of information is provided within this context that creates the confidence amongst providers and in the policymakers that we're providing this information from a patient safety perspective. It's not in the the court system or the judiciary system, which in some states the PMPs are, especially those that are focused on controlled substances. But again, I think it's the confidence from the providers that it's comprehensive, it's timely, and they have confidence in the tool of which we've been focusing on since its inception. Jamie, I'd like to just dovetail, this is Lara, on kind of the ability and one of the advantages I think Nebraska's approach to the PDMP provides to the providers as well as the patients. I think one of the amazing things about having all medications as opposed to just controlled substances available through the PDMP is it it has one destigmatized the use of the PDMP. It isn't just for monitoring individuals that are necessarily attempting to quote doctor shop or inappropriately acquire medications. So it's not necessarily there as a tool to police or, or interpreted as something that has malintent. But I think to have all medications in there, it becomes part of the clinical record then in many ways that the completeness of the HIE is, and it allows our physicians to extrapolate additional information from an individual who may be taking a diabetic medication, but a a diagnosis for diabetes does not necessarily show up in their medical record in the information that they have. So I think it provides missing information and then allows a starting point for physicians to say, oh, I see you're taking this. What are you taking that for? Or the ability to say, I see you're taking two medications that sometimes don't interact well together. How has that been going for you? So I think it not only provides a level of insight after that destigmatization, but I think that it also creates an additional layer for patient safety that is instrumental in today's society with the complexity of team members and then the complexity of interventions that we put into a patient's life. I want to continue talking about the prescription drug monitoring program. And as we think about the incredible power and potential of this unified single source of truth regarding prescription data, I want to focus and narrow down on what you've both mentioned is that there is this element that it can be leveraged to address the opioid crisis that we have in our country. And it's truly a crisis and catastrophe for our nation and has created immense suffering and unnecessary deaths. When you think that nationally across the U.S., we've got over 23 million Americans who are suffering from substance use disorder or SUD. And according to CDC data released in December, over 81,000 drug overdose deaths occurred in the U.S. between May 2019 and May 20. And the highest number of overdose deaths ever recorded in a 12-month period and two-thirds of which are related to opioids. Add to this the consideration that as many as one in five Medicaid beneficiaries experience SUD, but only 10% of people in the Medicaid program who need treatment for SUD actually receive it, which leaves us with 18 million Americans in an addiction treatment gap. On a personal level, I'll just note that, and I, I know there's many people in this similar situation that have been impacted like this, but my my mom's only brother died of an accidental overdose from opioids. And, you know, he was young and, and he's missed every day by his family. 
In October 2018, the Support for Patients and Communities Act was passed. And so as we're thinking about your role as the, the aggregator of all this information, what, what has been Sync Health's role in addressing the opioid crisis with a PDMP and data governance? And what are you doing in, in support of the Support Act? So we did a number of things um, with the Support Act, and I'm going to push this over to Laura here in a minute. But with the Support Act, what we did is recognize that we had a really good infrastructure for the pharmaceutical information, but what else could we extend into the community to address factors that contribute to substance use disorder? So we invested heavily in a community data exchange that would assist community-based providers to connect to healthcare in a way that would help us understand where there are needs in the community that can be addressed, perhaps by healthcare, perhaps through community connectedness, but understanding that we needed to have this additional information that could help better coordinate and manage care and outcomes that were beyond the pharmacy tools. So that's been one of our biggest investments with the Support Act. And then also some very practical tools and decision-making items that we enhance the PDMP with, like morphine milligram equivalents and different clinical decision-making support that we're able to provide notifications and alerts to providers to say, we're hitting a, a dangerous threshold. Here's some other options, that kind of bit of work that enabled us to provide a little bit more than we were for the, the pharmacy tools, but then extend further into the community. So actually, I was working in Medicaid at the time when the Support Act guidance first came about. And I think from many of the statistics you just shared around our individual patients um, with their history of substance use disorder, as well as some of the, the chronic complexities that occur in their life, whether those are socioeconomic barriers or whether those are healthcare barriers, I think the, the difficulty that patients had with sometimes participating in their care and, and providing meaningful information about the medications they were using, as well as advocating for themselves for non-pharmaceutical ways in particular to address pain management was sometimes difficult given all the other influences in their lives at the time. I think the Support Act really brought an amazing opportunity to states to address some of the foundational needs throughout the opioid crisis, and then leverage technology to provide greater awareness. I know you mentioned some of the information about the importance of providing information through the PDMP. I know there was, in 2010, they started looking at some information about, you know, an increase of over 50% for individuals who had providers checking the PDMP, then they were better able to follow the plan of care written by the original physician. And I think those are all well-intentioned individuals participating in a provider's care, but when you work sometimes with a, an individual who's disenfranchised from the healthcare system a little bit, it's sometimes hard to really understand and meet them where they're at. The ability through the projects that we had in Support Act offered the ability to kind of provide some funding assistance for technology. I think some of the ones that immediately come to mind is we were able to leverage funding to begin the kind of insights around what could a patient portal offer in an HIE environment and how would that be different or adjunct what a patient portal has through an EHR? How can a patient direct their care and the flow of their information and again, become more actively involved, particularly for those who are maybe coming out of a substance use treatment where that information is slightly more protected. We also had a wonderful opportunity, and I think we'll talk a little bit about this, to participate with some of our SQH funding to really address some of the core elements or the upstream elements that may lead an individual to struggle with opioid overuse or misuse. So how do we then um, participate with other partners in the community that are also trying to solve some of the upstream barriers to 
holistic care and, and particularly around those that may have um, drug or alcohol issues. So I know that we were able to leverage some of the Support Act funding to provide our community integration referral platform. Joy, I'll certainly give you the opportunity to speak a little more to that initiative if you'd like. What I was going to talk about too, I think where the team has been very smart is related to this is our, you know, the workaround policy. And one of the opportunities is with the establishment of the legislation that will allow us to actually use the PDMP from a utility perspective. And you mentioned data governance and how we do all that in a respectful and honorable way, but also how do we find out to what Laura and you were talking about is what are the best ways to provide the best care and what does the research tell us about what works, but also where are there gaps and access issues. And with the setup of the oversight that we'll have for approving projects, we'll be able to work with researchers to generate research questions to look at how we can really give unbiased information about how we could deliver care better. And hopefully that then in turn is used for public good and informs policy to begin to address some of these disparities, put resources where they're needed to meet some of the gaps you alluded to and actually start to fund programs that actually meet the need rather than just keeping identifying it. We're aware these issues exist. So how do we start to identify some solutions and advocate for the policy that will support that? Well, one other thing I wanted to ask you all about was how Sync Health is really taking a leading position in helping your constituents with the COVID-19 response. In the state of Nebraska, I know you've built quite a consortium with buy-in from health systems and labs and other providers across the state, really contributing data, really creating that longitudinal view of information for patients and having a valuable in real time, almost instantaneous access to ADT notifications and lab messages and with your PDMP, really having that be a natural extension of SyncHealth's mission, but more specifically focused on COVID-19 response. And I think about how important it is for that bright spot to really be utilized in a way where others can learn. And, you know, it seems like Sync Health, your researchers, the public health officials that you're working with, they've been able to really examine some of those underlying factors and that contribute to the severity and outcome of COVID-19 in specific groups. I know you've worked on a bed capacity dashboard that looks at real-time usage of ICU beds and overall bed utilization across Nebraska's health systems. You've been helping providers and officials really understand patterns and disease prevalence and, and helping health systems really allocate scarce resources quickly and efficiently. And you were even asked, as I understand, you demoed this and it's at the highest levels of HHS and the White House COVID-19 task force. So I wanted the three of you maybe to tell our listeners a little bit about that. And what were some of the features of the command center that you put in place to really help those provider organizations and their management of the COVID-19 virus? Yeah, this is Jamie. The work that we did early on in the spring of 2020 in response to COVID is that we took the HIE resources and leveraged them for the community need. And this is where, when we talk about being a utility, is that you take something designed for a purpose like ADT notifications, and we're able to take that, re-engineer it, and had a bed availability dashboard up within three weeks for broad use for HIE and the state. And that leverage of infrastructure really was an engagement tool for a broader community to say, I've never thought about the HIE in this context, like it could do this thing. So that helped us really get in front of some folks around the utility of the HIE. And then also being able to, having good public health officials that understood the availability of data and what they were being asked to do and where to go for data to, to drive decision-making. And, and often they came to us to help in that conversation. So with the support of the public health officials, we're able to provide additional context around chronic disease and COVID and race, ethnicity, and COVID, and underserved populations, and, and really looking at how we can explore this with the infrastructure that we had invested in, and that infrastructure being repurposed. The uh, second phase of that was to provide the COVID lab results widely to HIE participants, and I still have not come across a state 
that was providing that data to providers on a daily basis that they could look and see their lab results in community perspective if that lab was not done within their healthcare system. So that forethought of the public health and state health department folks was really a product of that public-private partnership and saying, we need to have access to this information because we need to be able to make the clinical decisions when these people show up in emergency departments. So it was really profound in that access to information that was timely and we're helping physicians make and providers make decisions in those very dark days of the spring of 2020. Yeah, so I think what I'm very proud of for uh, Sync Health and our team was the ability to really come together in innovative ways, uh, as Jamie mentioned, and thinking through how can we leverage this data in a non-traditional way. And a great example was it became very clear a couple of weeks into our opportunity of partnership with the state of Nebraska that individuals were probably not going to continue to attend primary care visits or really many even specialty visits, that extending their prescriptions was going to be more common while they managed some of the PPE shortage. So while we were standing up the dashboard that Jamie spoke about and and doing many of the things of trying to solve for problems that were real time for our state partners, we knew that we also had to provide them data that could be actionable with a population who may not be engaged or invested in attending visits on a regular basis. So that is, again, where our our relationship in the state of Nebraska and our use of the PDMP became very instrumental. We were able to, to identify that people were still filling their prescriptions with extended scripts. We were able to partner with our payers to understand how that was happening. And then we were able to leverage some of the historical data from the HIE as far as diagnosis with the current data of what types of medications were being filled in the absence of visits to put together a more complete picture to bring forward. So it was truly an amazing opportunity to look at kind of a patient matching experience and then how we could drive insights out of multiple different data sources I think our ability to bring information around our bed management dashboard was absolutely critical in the beginning to our legislative partners around policy insights for understanding where our threshold was for having too few or enough beds to drive our directed health measures. So I think in partnership with the many other kind of triangulated data sources, the legislative bodies were getting to make those decisions. We were part of those policy insights. The other thing I would say is we allowed, as Jamie mentioned, through providing some of that information on chronic disease or um, individuals on ventilators, we were able to identify some of the resource weaknesses in our communities to say, you know, you have 10 individuals in this community already on ventilators. We're beginning to see a higher incidence in this health county district of community spread. So proactively, here are some members who are known based on CDC criteria to be at higher risk for contracting COVID. You may consider proactively outreaching to those from a care management perspective. I think, again, our ability to to participate in solving kind of what we call the the denominator crisis, it's one thing to know how many tests you're giving, but it's really important to know how many tests you have available and to be able to help with providing resource shifts and insights throughout a state so that we could leverage a statewide approach and not just see that there were inequities in some of our rural areas or inequities in certain impoverished areas, but that we were able to point to some insights by county district and even drill down further when needed. I think we we have been very proud of doing that work in such a short amount of time. Yeah, and this is Joy. Now we're actually moving into looking at that from the perspective of building workforce and exposing learners. So we have developed a partnership with a local university in their uh, data science department, and we were onboarding a student to begin to look with the faculty at the COVID-19 dashboard, one for exposure 
from a data science perspective to healthcare so that they can understand the complexities of what that means as they pursue their data science career and also with the faculty to work together to generate research questions around COVID-19 because obviously we know we still have a lot to learn and that using the dashboard to now help inform what the next steps are and that as we move forward, how we start to manage COVID-19 into the future more effectively. And, and I'll just add that early on, we showed the dashboard and our work to Dr. Don Rocker, who at the time was the ONC, and he immediately saw the tie to HIE, PDMP, good utility type of infrastructure and that how that message needed to be spread across to HHS, connecting us with HHS Protect, connecting with us with CDC, the White House Task Force, and really advocating for that across agency to say these folks are doing the right thing. They're providing the infrastructure that's needed, and this is what we want to showcase. So I just want to highlight that his his willingness to say that this HIE is doing what we want HIEs to do and that the policy supports this and funding supports this type of work was really catalyzing us to being able to have access to the HHS secretary and briefing uh, the White House COVID task force on the work that we were doing. Well, Jamie, Joy, Laura, we couldn't have a conversation today without talking about social determinants of health and how that's being employed within your population health data utility. And I think about the Impact Act that was passed uh, several years ago, the Improving Medicare Post-Acute Transformation Act, if you want to use the long-form name. And it was really established to improve Medicare beneficiary outcomes, improve provider understanding of patient needs, improve coordination of services. And I know that the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation just put out a second report to Congress, and they're exploring ways that providers can collaborate with social services providers and share SDOH data at the local level. And we know that environmental conditions in which people are born, grow and live, work and age, things such as income and education, employment, housing, social support, transformation, these have profound effects on health outcomes and healthcare providers are really trying to figure this out. I have a sense you guys are doing some good work here. And I know um, health systems now are going to be more accountable for providing care and in these future alternative payment models and being able to, to really have some cross-sector collaboration. A couple of things I wanted to ask you about. I mean, I know Sync Health is one of the few community networks that's emerged to facilitate these cross-sector connections. And you're rolling out an SDOH platform that supports that work. And you have, through the Gravity Project, you're collaborating with these subject matter experts nationwide to develop standards for SDOH data collection and exchanging and electronic record systems. And that particular initiative, I know, is really intended to identify and review terminologies, conduct gap analysis, provide recommendations to address gaps and nationally recognized standards. So all that said, I wanted to ask you just how is Sync Health's SDOH platform allowing you to bring social determinants of health data to where it matters? And how is Sync Health's unique position in adding value to the Gravity Project really informing some of the value-based policies that are being developed at both the national and state level. So I'll just comment on this briefly because Laura and Joy are the ones doing most of the work in this space. So the journey to SDOH platform and why that's connected to HIE and PDMP is because we did want to establish a community option. And what we saw at the beginning of many of these efforts around SDOH is that it was becoming siloed within healthcare systems. System A would have picked vendor A, system B picked vendor B. And what we wanted to establish is that that's an over collateralization of technology in a very small space that is generally underfunded and under-resourced and sending more notifications out and more referrals out to the community wasn't going to solve the problem. So if we could provide a neutral place where we could convene this data, establish data standards, make sure that's connected back to the patient record, uh, enable a more agnostic approach in the community, could that be a better path forward than healthcare systems, establishing technology partners, and then fighting for community space? 
Like we did not want that to happen again, much like it happens with other technologies. You know, we, we didn't need nine event notification systems in a community. We needed one. And similarly in the SDOH space, we need one. So how can we influence that? And that was through a technology partner in our initiative, Unite Nebraska and Unite Iowa and other uh, SDOH initiatives that we're involved in. But that is what is predicated on our approach to SDOH. Yeah, so this is Joy. This is a obviously very big passion part for us as trying to address the inequities that exist in healthcare. And what I really love about our approach is that we recognize that you know, we're all socially determined in some way, right? Where we live, work, play, pray, however you want to frame it, and directly influences our health. And so we're very aware of that. And there are great people in both in health systems and communities really trying to address social needs. And really, when we talk about social determinants for health, it's really starting to look at inequity and structural issues that come into play. And we've recently done a project looking at health and homelessness with a local coalition, and we helped uh, deliver a data report around that. And from that, we got in a great conversation in the coalition where there's high rates of readmissions, hospital readmissions of the homeless and the shelters were saying, yeah, we we literally call the ambulance when you drop patients off that have a wound or something we can't take care of. We know we're contributing to this readmission problem. How can we work with you to address that? It's not good for the health systems. It's not good for the homeless shelters. And most of all, it's not good for the patients. So when we start to connect health systems and community-based organizations together as a continuum of care and recognize that they all have resources that if they're connected can bring to really address the issues that affect one's health status, we start to be able to have some better conversations around inequity and, and what resources should be put in place to actually keep people healthy and recognize what those concerns are. Sometimes that's going to be with specific populations, and sometimes it's going to be just general. We were all affected by the pandemic in some way, whether where we lived affected, whether your children went to school, whether you know, what you did is directed health measures. And so it's become very apparent to people that where you live and, and who you interact with matters to your health status. So we're really passionate about building this infrastructure so that we can actually look at the data. I was reading a report today out of the National Quality Forum that was identifying how poorly we're doing as a nation and tracking our race and ethnicity metrics no matter what system and how it becomes very challenging to really get our arms around issues related to structural racism and other factors when we don't really have good data collected. And in our partnership with Gravity Project, really trying to understand data standards, but also incentives for data sharing and making sure that data is in the right place to get to Jamie's point where we're not duplicating the same thing with SDOH platforms that we did with electronic health records with the ultimate goal, again, to really build those equitable systems. And this is, again, where policy comes into play and uh, thinking about incentives for data sharing and how we incentivize that so we don't, again, run into disparate data, silo data. And the ultimate challenge of that is you already have vulnerable people, and then they've gotten five referrals for food insecurity, and no one's actually dealt with the food insecurity. We're really good at referring people and saying, here's the resource, but we're not very good about connecting and make sure there's follow-up. And that's also what's so important about our initiative is a closed-loop referral system, and we're really trying to, again, get the data in a closed loop so that the patients, the, per, the most important person in the mix really has their social needs taken care of. And when we can start to address those social needs, then we can get into deeper conversations about inequities and the structures that need to be put in place to support people to have a healthier life. Thank you, Joy. I think that's a wonderful way to kind of think through holistically how Sync Health is looking at the, the barriers to addressing social determinants of health within the sphere of the healthcare ecosystem. I think one of the, the challenges that, that we frequently hear as we're partnering with our community-based organizations is the complexities that the technology can often bring to their work. And as uh, Jamie kind of foreshadowed, many of them are on a limited budget. They may work on grants. So I think one of the opportunities is to leverage the technology to make the work easier for all of the access points. But I think the cross-sector partnerships that you mentioned at the beginning is really about the ability to provide insight from a clinical perspective or a community perspective to what unintended consequences might 
a heavy technology tool provide or cause to the system. So to just further discuss the Gravity Project, I think one of the opportunities we've continued to have in conversation with the Gravity Project is the importance of bringing enough codes that we can differentiate and understand the problem and really then begin to measure our success or weaknesses in solving the SDOH space, but not bringing so many codes that people meaningfully can't leverage those codes to provide a difference in how they're treating someone. And then also to be aware that much of our difficulties that we have in healthcare are our patients no longer experience singular problems. And SDOH being no different, they may have, as Joy mentioned, housing insecurity, but along with their housing insecurity, they probably also struggle with financial instability or transportation problems. And so as opposed to addressing these in a singular way, is there a way to lessen the burden for the the individuals working at the community-based organizations, as well as the patients to meet their needs more holistically? I think our partnership and our platform is really designed to really think about the end user or the consumer at heart. And then Joy, I'll certainly offer you to jump in and provide some additional insights. But we also believe we should measure what matters. And if we're not measuring something, we don't know how to improve it. And so we've also had this partnership with the National Quality Forum to really bring information and data to early interventions as far as how could we have meaningful full quality metrics that now also include SDOH or provide meaningful risk associations that bring in SDOH data. Joy, I know you've been certainly instrumental in our work with NQF, so I'll see if you have anything additional to add. Yeah, so one of the things we're also doing is looking at submitting a measure and thinking about the standards around that. And beyond even the work of NQF, we're thinking a lot about social risk scores, social risk stratification, and how we start to actually think about this. I actually was meeting with the COO of a hospital today, and he was talking to me about the tension of the drivers between getting more people to use their emergency department in their hospital and the tension of wanting him as a leader, wanting to focus more on population health metrics and how they're struggling because the incentives to do that, even though he wants to do that, aren't there in place and some of the pressures on them. So I think What we really want to think about related to what Laura was saying is how we start to build some of that and help demonstrate those metrics to be able to pull that through. We're also um, looking at setting some, even just evaluation around how do we evaluate the effectiveness? Are we meeting people's needs? Are these the systems that will really help move them forward? Because we can do a lot of measure development, a lot of data tracking, but if people don't use the technology or the benefits that we offer, we really need to evaluate that. So connecting with our CBOs, community-based organizations to make sure they've feel comfortable, and then ultimately the end user. So I think it's a really multi-layered approach. And I think we have to think all the way from top policy, all the way down to the individual patient experience and really be, as Laura alluded, very holistic in our approach to make sure that we actually can build systems that really help people. Thank you all. What a great response. I'm really glad you brought up the disparities element of this. You know, when when you think about it, the public health data is irrefutable on this point that the institutional and systemic racism result in minority populations receiving worse health care and experiencing worse outcomes than their white peers. And we know that these systemic and cultural issues are intertwined and that the data that underlies it all is a major contributor to the systemic racism that we see. You know, as you were talking, I was reflecting on a study that I reviewed recently And it shows that Blacks with the same symptoms are assumed to be less sick than their white peers. And so they're not cared for or treated appropriately when their risk stratified by the data. And it comes down to the algorithm that's stratifying the population, and it uses spending on care as a proxy for the severity of illness. And now during our current climate and with the pandemic and increased national awareness on disparities that are prevalent throughout our industry. We, we talk about this with many of our guests to win the race to value health equity must be the ultimate and really the only acceptable goal. I'd love to hear more about how Sync Health is rooting out data that leads to discriminatory treatment for minority populations and how you're helping bring true equity to healthcare delivery for providers that you serve. 
I think one of the best ways you start doing that is democratizing the data and putting it in the hands of the people that need it most. And also, I'd say the other solution is community-driven approaches. I think it's very important to own in the community. I mean, I own my whiteness and that I come from a privileged experience. I am in a position of power in some situations. So how do I embolden the community voices? And we've been working on a project where we're really looking at some alliance and partnership building to make sure that we are getting the right and diverse voices around the table so that we can actually hear what those concerns are and start to solution together. Community-based organizations have a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge, and there are lots of people within those communities that understand these issues very well. And so how do we get on the ground to bring all those perspectives in and listen to people? I think the other thing that you pointed out is about the financial metrics and you know, claims data is important and certainly as a place in research, but there's also an opportunity to really look at health information exchange data. And there is benefit to looking at the financial side, but there's also a benefit of taking that away and looking at the care delivery. Because in some situations in the race to value, we should be delivering more care and surrounding people with more resources so that they can actually be healthy and have their needs met. And in some cases, we're looking at reduction of in certain areas. So when we think about utilizations, this is where thinking about, you know, the right type of utilization, rather than looking at a cost metric, which may be really what access they had in their area, there can be lots of influences to why someone's accessing more costly care. It may just be a lack of understanding and health literacy of the patient of where they can go for the most effective, cost-effective care, inform consumers, start to realize that and shop around and start to understand some of those things. But, you know, somebody may not understand that, oh, going to the emergency department every time is, is, is not cost effective. So we need to start to root down into those and understand what some of those behaviors mean and then try to triangulate the, all these policy issues and all these perspectives with what is really going to solution and listen to the voices that really can tell us and guide us. And that is really going to have us take pause and do some internal reflection about you know, how we treat people, do we do we listen to those voices and do we are we open to solutions that maybe are not the traditional solutions and can we disrupt some of the ways that we do things because we are seeing a lot of discussion around artificial intelligence holding bias and again there's risk there. So we we talk about this a lot and think about in the data standards and I think the best way for us to move forward is to continue to listen to people and that's why this week we went out and met with some of our community partners and we're listening to their feedback to try to make sure that we're doing that, we're putting together community advisory councils and clinical user groups to really make sure we're listening to the people that deal with our utilities every day and have those experiences because we don't wanna stay really in our ivory tower and try to solution all these things without a lot of co-creation and input from them. I will just add that the lack of infrastructure for the sharing of health information is an inequity. And when we apply things like Medicaid cost allocation to the investment by states and in infrastructure, that is an inequity. So if we disincentivize the free flowing of information for appropriate uses of patient information, that is an inequity. And we create these silos of information. And as long as we bifurcate data, as long as we create fiefdoms, we are creating inequities in the community that are hard to know for population health purposes, what the true outcomes are, because we don't have the data to inform. Jamie, I think that's great feedback. This is Lara. I, it, it's, it's certainly an area that I do feel quite passionate about. And I think one of the opportunities that the population health area here at Sync Health is we certainly look at those distributional inequities and how they lead to unfair resource allocations. And we understand that they exist. And we understand that part of, of solving that are reducing the procedural inequities that Joy mentioned and, and partnering with communities who understand their community, and then listening and hearing through qualitative data approaches to how do we better understand the quantitative data that's coming to us through the systems we spoke about, our community integration referral platform, our HIE, our PDMP. But I think it's also um, extremely important, and we would be remiss not to talk about reducing the structural inequities. And that's really how do we help partner with, whether it be a community 
community stakeholder or whether it be individuals in our legislative bodies to operationalize that information. How do we take that information and make it be meaningful? And sometimes the reality is through data governance, it's talking about what information might not be present to make this fairly applied and to be able to holistically apply this decision for decision making. In the absence of that, most people will rely on heuristics, which is assuming the data adequately represents the entire population. And unfortunately, we find that poor decisions lead to those distributional inequities. And that has long been known in the policy world. It's an unintended consequence from the lack of involvement and triangulation of the data to really then understand where the data weaknesses are. And I think that's something we proudly leverage our data governance, a very sophisticated data governance model to understand that, as well as then taking that one step further as our job is not done by delivering the data. Data misused is also just as dangerous as not having data available. And so to help partner with our communities and the others to take that data and understand, particularly when it comes to the social determinant areas, how that data may be complete and insightful, or how that data may only provide a partial picture and what part can you rely on? Yeah, I think, Laura, one of the things I think is unique about what we do is we're not driving a research agenda. We're listening to all of our partners and saying, what is it you want to study? And we work very closely in partnership with them to develop that and and look at the data we have to see how we can collaborate. And I think that's a really great way to bring voice to vulnerable people. When you meet with the Health and Housing Coalition, you don't say, here's the data. You say, hey, what is it you're interested in understanding? And let's look at what we can look at the health information exchange, help you have that discussion. And then even with sophisticated researchers, where again, we are not uh, defining their agenda, we're working with them to support them in their growth and understanding of whatever research question they have with the push that this data needs to be used for public good and to inform population health. And that's the expectation of our partnership with any of our cross-sector partners. I'm thinking about health equity and democratization of data and using it for the public good. And, you know, I can't help but think that, you know, equity is really the opportunity equalizer. And in order to, to achieve that as a society, we do have to focus on on data, but also the, the education around using that data and transforming it into information that can be empowered and enabling within a community. And education, I know if utilized in the right way and delivered to those in the community, it could really eliminate barriers and allocate resources in the right way to promote learning and access. And and that has such an important part to play in value-based care because it it improves fairness, raises recognition of implicit biases and structural racism. It it understands root causes. It looks at outcome disparities and programs. You know, Joy, this may be a good question for you to start with, but in your role as the chief academic program officer for Nebraska Healthcare Collaborative and the vice president for community and academic programs at Sync Health. I'm just thinking, where do we go from here in terms of using this data? And I, I know you don't have a research agenda per se at Sync Health, but you're partnering with, with organizations in, there in the community to really foster collaboration, promote learning and teaching across sectors for teams and individuals, really thinking about how to transform healthcare education and deliver delivery of care and where does it all come together in terms of the right skill sets for value-based care? Can you speak to your thoughts around partnering with academic institutions and maybe expound upon that a little bit more about how we bridge uh, some of these gaps? Yes. So for me, I had to learn the values-based payment system in my previous role for a lot of the work that we did and what we were trying to do. And so I really think one of the strategies we have is to really build this health data competent workforce where clinicians have enough understanding of technology and data to be able to provide input and provide the feedback they need so that systems become less burdensome because I don't really know anybody that loves their electronic health record. I looked at a stat that said clinicians are spending 60% of their day in the technology and that's probably not where we want them to be spending their time if we think about optimal patient care. So And then the other side of that is building awareness of technologists and data scientists on 
you know, what does it mean to work in the healthcare industry? What's knowledge and understanding? I mean, we were just reading with a data scientist a couple weeks ago about a project and he said, well, everyone listens to their physicians and does what they say. And we're like, no, maybe you do, but that's not everybody, right? So some of the understanding, developing that competency on both sides to really create a workforce that's ready to address and, and really push us to the values-based payment movement that we so want to move towards so that we have payment for quality over service delivery. So that's really one of our strategies. And the other, I think, is to your point, yes, we don't have a research agenda, but I'd say broadly, we're focused on population health and addressing uh, social determinants of health. And we can do such a broad spectrum of different projects from working with community-based organizations to looking at, uh, we have projects focused on opioid exposure of infants. We have projects looking at asthma. So what's really wonderful is that we can really look at a broad scope of health issues and start to look at how we can understand the data around them to start to, again, push us to look at solutions or understand the data better to engage in more robust data-driven discussions to, again, move to solutions that identify what that is. It's really easy to go into a community or an organization, identify a problem. And what the data really helps us do is kind of level set the conversation to say, hey, this is what, what's being collected. This data is sitting there. And in some ways, it, in addition to the data being public and democratizing it, it a little bit democratizes the conversation because really can't argue with the quantitative statistics that are provided about readmissions or where the utilizations are and things like that. So that's really where we start to move into community action and really starting to use the data for public good, which is really, I think, the ultimate goal to frame that to be the utility and, and make sure that this data isn't just collected for the sake of reimbursement or for metrics, but really, again, starts to have us look at ourselves as an entire system and look at what we can do better, look at where we have gaps in care, look at which groups of people have perceived gaps, and then start to develop either localized solutions that might do that or national policy that can incentivize and influence. And you're right, Eric, it's very complicated because we're talking about things really at a micro level of exposing students to basic things about systems. I mean, I taught a class last semester and students thought Medicare was free, right? So sometimes we have some very basic things we're talking about, and then we get really complex of thinking about at a systems level, how can we push the system forward? Where we can be, I think, really unique is we can really partner with our academic institutions to help them bring in resources to do robust research and provide an opportunity for them to look at data that they really haven't thought about as a data source before. So there's benefit there for them to develop their scholarly agenda and, and partner with us. And so that helps them bring in local resources to study those things, which is also advantageous to our, our academic partners. And really what we're finding is this is an issue for research across the country to have access to good and meaningful data. So we hope to really partner nationally with people interested to look at the data and help us. You don't have to be uh, living in Nebraska to research our data and help us make a healthier state. And then what can you learn from looking at the data here and advocating for how the data infrastructures can be built in other communities and other states? because we're definitely leading that, that initiative. So I would say the main thing is the health data competent workforce, and then really that the data that drives um, improved population health. Joy, this is Laura. I would say, I think that is a great opportunity. I'm so proud of Sync Health for stepping into that space. One of the, I think just to, to drill down a tiny bit, one of the things many of recent articles are showing for producing a health competent workforce is really the ability for both the data science teams as well as the clinical teams to be able to participate jointly in data modeling and understanding how models come together and the value of that, because ultimately, as we've discussed, that's what really leads to the health outcomes that we're relying so much on to make future determinations. That's something that we focus on quite a bit here in our training, as well as then kind of taking that to the next step of reducing the potential for some of that distribution and equity by leveraging information to really help whoever it would be in this case, maybe it's our community-based organizations, leverage that knowledge that comes from data. And, and often we find that teaching people how to do meaningful visualizations and use visual data is where we can capture the broadest amount of 
the audience as opposed to sometimes very sophisticated analytics, which a lot of our data science teams want to come in and use. And I think that's something that Joy's program has been instrumental at leveraging is the insights and then more importantly, how to do that with utility and take that to their next job. So Eric, what you've heard here is some very talented clinicians explaining how they're able to translate this very valuable tool back to their clinical peers. And I think that's the differentiator for Sync Health is that we take a very pragmatic approach to the HIE, the PDMP, the SDOH, the claims infrastructure, and make it usable by inviting stakeholders in to say, What are the use cases you're trying to solve for? What is the thing that you want fixed within your infrastructure? What would be helpful to you on a daily basis? I think that's important to call out in what makes SyncElf different from our HIE and PDMP. I would agree with that, Jamie. We are here to help and collaborate with people. It's not, again, just about us. It's about working with the community and I think that does make us different and special. You can go a lot of places and request data, but we're willing to have a conversation about with you about that and what you plan to do with it and how we can transform the community and and healthcare with that. And I think that's something really special that we do. And we also realize that we're all learners, right? So I had to learn a lot about values-based payments to understand and do my previous role in this role well, and I didn't learn those things in school. So Also creating that learning community for us all to learn together, because a lot of this is innovative and we haven't thought about before, but we know these social inequities exist. We know care needs improvement. And so we're all driven by those passions to do that and realize that it comes from solving problems at really small levels and all the way up to addressing them even on a national level. Joy, Lara, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today on the Race to Value. What a great conversation so much insight and i'm really grateful that we could have you with us today and look forward to uh future conversations and watching as you continue to work and have an amazing impact on the industry thank you yep thank you thank you